Today's presentation is Living a Life to the Full. There's a company you've, you've probably never heard of, big company, uh, known in some parts of the world, but probably not known in Australia. Google is everywhere. And Google is into everything. Some things that you might not even think of, you might even be surprised about. In 2013, Google created a company called Calico. Calico. Like a calico cat, but that's not what they had in mind. Calico stands for the California Life Company. And Google has now turned itself in the direction of trying to help people live longer, encouraging people onto that track. In order to uh, promote their efforts, they hired a high-flying scientist. This woman had figured out how to make roundworms live longer. I'm sure you can see the connection. And so because she was able to increase the longevity of roundworms, they said, this is the kind of person that we need to help us crack the code of life. A Google engineer, Ray Kurzweil, and some of you might recognize his name because he's very closely associated with the music industry. He said, computers the size of blood cells, little robotic devices that can go through our bloodstream, and those little devices will be connected to the cloud. He said we can look forward to that time. Now, when? When would this be? Little devices, robotic devices in your bloodstream? Uh, you'd think that your immune system might go after them, but evidently not. When is this going to take place? In the year 2500, 2400, 2300? Oh, no. Google says this is going to happen by the year 2030. So we're only a decade away from this. A lot of our thinking will be non-biological, and it will be backed up so that if part of it gets wiped away, you can recreate it. We'll be able to extend our lives indefinitely. They are saying that by the year 2045, human beings will be able to live forever. And in this scenario, this ought to frighten you. They say that our brains will be connected to the Internet. Um, I think that's probably more harm than good, but that's what they're talking about. In 2014, a hedge fund manager in Silicon Valley announced that he would give a million dollars to anybody who was able to crack the code of life. You see, what we've got in the world right now is a situation where people live long, longer and lo more people are living longer. I was about to say longer and longer, but that's not true. More people are living longer. Now, there was a lady, Jean, Jean Calmont, who a few years ago managed to, managed to die, which everybody does, but she distinguished her death because she managed to die at the age of 122. But she was a bit of a freak. She was an outlier. The, long, the oldest person in the world is almost always 114, 115. And even though more and more people are making it to 100, no more people are making it past 115. That seems to be our limit. So this man said, his name was Jun Yun, he said a million dollars for anyone who can crack the code. In a way, really, this desire to, and I quote, solve aging is just a modern iteration of the legend of Juan Ponce de Leon, the first governor of Puerto Rico, whose search for the fountain of youth led him to Florida, La Florida, in the year 1513. 
So Google's onto it. Hedge fund managers are onto it. Scientists are onto it. The goal is to crack the aging problem or the dying problem. They want, we collectively, humanity wants to see human beings live longer and maybe even live forever, which is all a bit funny, really. Because long ago, people without advanced scientific degrees and without the backing of Calico, somebody said, this company created by Google has so much money, it can do anything it wants. Well, long ago, people without a whole lot of money, many of them, some exceptions, people without advanced academic achievements, almost exclusively, but not exclusively, figured this out and told us about it already. The Bible already tells you how you can lengthen life. In fact, the Bible tells us how we can live forever. Here are some plain words from Jesus. You want to know how to live forever? I will tell you it all boils down to what you eat. Probably a anxiety-inducing thing to say before people go off and eat the fellowship meal. But if you want to live forever, it depends directly on what you eat. Jesus said that. He said, I am the bread of life. He that comes to me shall never hunger, and he that believes on me shall never thirst. He went on to say, I am the living bread which came down from heaven. Now, here's the point. If anyone eats of this bread, that person shall live forever. And the bread that I will give is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. The Bible tells us over and over and over that God's plan is that you live forever. What Google is trying to accomplish is a way that people can live forever without God. Immortality independent of God. Let that frighten you because, in other words, they're trying to play God. Of course, it's impossible. More, not impossible like making a piece of paper big enough to step through. We found out that that's actually possible. And I think you might have been about as surprised as I was by that wonderful children's story. But this idea of living eternally without God, independent of God, absolutely is impossible. It's preposterous. Millions and millions of dollars being spent on something that God gives away freely. Jesus said in John 10 and verse 10, I am come that they may have life and that they may have it more. What? What's that word? Abundantly. That's God's plan. God's plan is that you get the most out of life. Funny thing. Some people think if I become a Christian, I got to give things up. I got to be straight laced. I get less out of life. Hold on a minute. It's not until you accept Jesus into your life that you are really living. That's when things really begin. Jesus came so that you can have a more abundant life. But the problem is most human beings have dedicated themselves to harming themselves, to curtailing their life. I would say to killing themselves. We know that a lot of what we eat is just plain bad for us. The state of California has put a warning on coffee stating that it causes cancer. Now, when you get your cup from Starbucks, there's going to be somewhere a little warning on there. At least that's what California has planned. 
the World Health Organization, not perfect, but not made up by cranks and lunatics, the World Health Organization has come out and stated, stated that processed meat causes cancer, not might cause, but absolutely does cause. Alcohol, not only does it put people in mortuaries, it is cancer-causing. It's devastating. We know that the same is true for nicotine. It causes premature death. The average Australian consumes something like 35 kilograms of sugar a year when the experts say that we should be consuming no more than one-third of that. In England... A reputable scientist warned recently that millions of middle-aged Britons today will, in 20 years from now, be suffering from, I'm telling you the truth here, four major lifestyle diseases such as cancer, diabetes, and dementia. She's a scientist at Newcastle University, not Newcastle, New South Wales, Newcastle, Great Britain. And she says the reason people are picking up these devastating lifestyle diseases, I'll tell you, it's simple. She says it's down to obesity and inactivity. Google's trying to crack the code of life. God did it long ago. In other words, these are diseases people are dying from prematurely, and they could all, almost all, very nearly all of them, be avoided and prevented. Part of the problem is this. We're just not very good at discipline. I'm not meaning disciplining the kids. I'm talking about self-discipline. We don't think too much about thinking ahead. We just eat what we want to eat, drink what we want to drink, smoke what we want to smoke without thinking that there's going to be payday someday. That one cigarette probably isn't going to make a very big difference. But a lifestyle of nicotine is going to kill you, and it isn't a pleasant death. We say to ourselves, ooh, I like that kind of food, and maybe you do. And to have it once won't even move the needle. But if it becomes a lifestyle, oh, my goodness. But you see, we don't always think like that. We don't always plan ahead. We don't always think about where will this leave me 10, 20, 30, 40 years from now? Now, think about this in spiritual terms, because that's what really matters. Paul, writing to the Corinthians, said this. Do you not know that your body is the, tell me the what? The temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own, for you were bought at a price. Therefore... Glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. So let's remember something. To begin with, your body is not your own. And I hear people who say to me, well, you got to die of something. Uh, that's true, but you don't have to die of everything. There are some things you don't need to, to die from. And others will say, it's my body. I'll do with it whatever I like. Hold on. That's a mistake. It's not your body at all. It belongs to God, and you have been asked to manage it for the glory of God. So being as it's God, it means we ought to be responsible about it because it is God's property. The Bible makes clear there's a connection between our physical well-being and our spiritual well-being. Look at what John wrote. This is in one of the little Johns, 3 John 2. Beloved, 
I pray that you may prosper in all things and be in health just as your soul prospers. Healthy body, healthy mind. More and more people are catching on to this now. This was originally a Bible principle. It got hijacked a few decades ago by hippies. Christians seem to have forgotten about it. The New Age movement is all over it. Now Christians are starting to catch up, and science is starting to catch up at well as well. There is a very strong connection between your physical well-being and your spiritual well-being. Back in 1 Corinthians, Paul uses an interesting metaphor. He refers to the ancient games where competitors would participate in athletic events, and he connects it to the Christian experience. He says this, Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? He says, run in such a way that you will obtain it. He's referring to the ancient games. That's not what he's talking about. And everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. Now, they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we, for an imperishable crown. And then he says, therefore I run thus, not with uncertainty. Thus I fight, not as one who beats the air, but I discipline my body and I bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. Now you notice that he's saying the athlete who runs, he or she is temperate. You know that before the Olympic Games or the Commonwealth Games, the athletes are training and they're taking care of themselves. There are a few of them who go on a binge at Hungry Jack's. It just doesn't work out that way. They care about what they put in. They take precautions that what they're putting into their bodies is good for them. In the same way, Paul says the believer needs to discipline the body. Bring it into subjection. Well, what does that mean? That means that sometimes I see that piece of cake or that chocolate biscuit and I say, oh, I want that. But then I say, "Ah, no, no, that that's just that's not good for me right now. And I'm not talking about that one occasional one. Sometimes I might see, let's say, a beer and say to myself, oh, I'm so thirsty. That would be good right now. But the Bible says we bring under our bodies and keep them in a subjection. You know what it's like. I'm hungry. I got to grab something to eat. Oh, I got nothing to eat. Well, there's McDonald's. I'll eat there. Oh, there's no McDonald's. I'll go to KFC. I could get a little cardboard box, but I walked out with a great big bucket of this stuff because it just looked good. If a little was good, a lot had to be better. But Paul talks about making decisions otherwise. Sometimes you're tempted to drink or smoke or sniff or toke or whatever it might be. And we say, no, wait a minute. That might be the will of me, but what's the will of God? The body ought to serve the mind and not the other way around. So at times, it's appropriate that we say, no, we won't do that, won't eat that, won't drink that. What we're talking about really is surrender to the will of God. Because you might say, I just don't have the willpower to push away from the table after one plate of food. I got to have... Well, in my case, you know, four, (laughs) seven. I want to just keep on eating. I'm not talking about willpower. No one is saved by grace through 
willpower. We're saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. So what we're referring to here is a situation where Jesus is the Lord of your life. Even in this area of your life, because we are encouraged to honor God in all things. Paul makes a very clear connection. He says, if I'm not temperate, I will be disqualified. The King James Version of the Bible says, a castaway. The Greek word means reprobate. Not standing the test. Lost. Paul connects temperance with spiritual health. God offers us eternal life in the world to come and a more abundant life in this world. John wrote, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God, fear God and give glory to him for the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made heaven and earth and and the sea and the springs of waters. Now, did you notice what he said here? Fear God and give glory to him. And back to Paul who wrote, therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Isn't that something? Do all to the glory of God. And he mentions what you eat and what you drink. And so this is something we ought to be considering. What we put into our bodies affects the function of our minds. We're affected emotionally, spiritually. And for people getting ready to spend eternity with God, for people getting ready for earth's last great crisis, for people getting ready for the greatest spiritual battle this planet has ever witnessed, that is very important. You remember, Daniel said, there is coming a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation. Each of us is involved in a battle for the mind. It comes to a head in Revelation 14 and verse 9. If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives a mark in his forehead or in his hand. Notice some people will receive a mark in their forehead. It represents the mind, when encouraged to eat food offered him by the king of Babylon, the young man, Daniel, kept his body pure for God. He said, I cannot eat that. This is not what I do. This is not something that would honor God. And this man who honored God with his body was blessed by God with spiritual messages, with prophecies, the most profoundly important messages ever given. He kept his mind clear, and therefore he was able to excel physically and spiritually. God gave Daniel the prophecy which underpins all major last-day prophecy. The Bible tells you that the frontal lobe of your brain, let me say that again, science tells you that the frontal lobe of your brain is the seat of reason, intellect, judgment, and the will, the frontal lobe, this, this bit right behind your forehead. If you damage the brain, if you impair the brain, if you 
clog it up, if I can use that very scientific term. It's difficult to have the relationship with God that he wants you to have. So it's clear then that Christians don't want to be using illegal mind-altering drugs. It's so fascinating right now in New Zealand. They're about to judge, uh, about to vote on whether or not to legalize marijuana. I think they will. It's fascinating. It's interesting. I'm, I'm editorializing here, I suppose. Politicians, you know, pretty much say sometimes, so many people are doing it anyway and we can't stop them. Let's just tax it and make some money off it. And that's what they do with prostitution in New Zealand, and it's what they're doing with casino gambling, and it's what they're about to do with marijuana. But what people are forgetting is that marijuana has really, really negative impacts on the mind. I've seen it in friends of mine. It'll burn out your brain. And you might say, well, I've been, not you. Someone might say, well, I've been smoking weed for 30 years and I'm okay. Well, you might be more okay than some, but you're not as okay as you would be. That's the answer to that. Mind-altering drugs, the illegal ones. I'm not talking about something that a physician prescribes and you have to take for your sanity or your health. These drugs damage you. Certainly there are more damaging drugs, recreational drugs, than marijuana. But you know there are legal substances which affect the mind and therefore lessen our ability to connect with God. Research demonstrates that alcohol has direct effects on the frontal lobe. MRIs of alcoholics reveal that the brain of an alcoholic has suffered a considerable amount of frontal lobe damage. Now, that would not surprise you, but here's what might surprise you. Recreational drinkers, occasional drinkers, damage their brains as well. Let me tell you what I read recently from an esteemed uh, uh, outlet. If you are a drinker, you are assuming tremendous risks. There is no level to which you can reduce your drinking so that you reduce your risk. You hear that? Whatever risk a heavy drinker is assuming, you don't lessen the risk by cutting back the drinking because it's all bad for you and it all does a tremendous amount of damage. The very best thing is to let it go. And I know that every now and then you bump into somebody who says, oh, a little, it's just a little, that's not harmful. My response would be, if it's a little, it won't be harmful for you to let it go. What are you trying to prove by choosing to dishonor God? Proverbs chapter 20, verse 1 says, Wine is a mocker, strong drink is a brawler, and whoever is led astray by it is not wise. Massive amounts of problems are caused by alcohol. There are numerous reasons that I chose to give up alcohol when I wore a younger man's clothes. Not simply because hangovers were doing me in. Not simply because it was a waste of money. But by supporting the alcohol industry in any way, I was sanctioning an industry that was causing untold death, massive amounts of domestic violence, and all kinds of other criminal activity and immoral behavior. You can't be part of that in any way. Here's what alcohol does. The wise man wrote about it. Do not look on the wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup, 
when it swirls around smoothly. He's not referring to the unfermented juice, which the Bible refers to as wine as well. This is the fermentation, pro- or not the process, but the fermented stuff. At the last, it bites like a serpent and stings like an adder. Your eyes will see strange things. Your heart will utter perverse things. It talks about waking up in the morning and discovering that you have wounds and saying, how did I get these? You forgot that you mouthed off at the pub and somebody punched you in the face. This is what happens because of alcohol. And the Bible saw that coming and said, just stay away. Think of the traffic deaths and the injuries that alcohol causes. Domestic violence fueled by alcohol. Prisons are full of people who committed crimes under the influence of alcohol. What you might term moral misadventure is frequently fueled, caused by people under the influence of alcohol. I spoke to a friend of mine who was a policeman. I said, how much less work would you have to do if there was no such thing as alcohol? He said, 90% of my work would be gone. I spoke to another friend, a, a cop. I thought, let me try that again. I said to him, I heard that if there's no alcohol, 90% of your work would just disappear. He said, that's not accurate. Oh, he said, it's more than 90%. That's the testimony I got from a couple of cops who work in communities and confront this every day. Ah, but didn't Jesus uh, drink wine? What about what Paul told Timothy? Don't drink water. Instead, drink wine for the sake of your stomach. Wine, yes. Grape juice, not Cabernet Sauvignon. Not a Merlot, not a little Saturn, not some dessert wine. That's not what he's referring to. <laughs> I was at a family member's friend, a family member's wedding, and uh, and, uh, and, uh, and and somebody mentioned alcohol, and 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 he, the family member, it was his wedding. He said, "Oh, you know, the Bible says it's okay to drink a little wine for your stomach's sake." I said, "So can you explain why the waiters and waitresses are serving Jack Daniels? That's not wine." No one thinks that's wine. You all are serving the hard stuff and you're using the Bible to try to excuse it. That's not right. No. Paul was writing to Timothy and he was saying, you got an upset stomach. I'll tell you what might help you. Grape juice. You drink that. Paul wouldn't write to Timothy and say, oh, forget everything you ever read in the scriptures, Timothy. Forget all that stuff about drinking wine. No way. The one who inspired the Bible writers to warn about the dangers of alcohol doesn't then inspire someone to say, this one's on me. The scriptures don't contradict. I want you to look at something here. This is Isaiah chapter 65. We're reading in verse 8. As the, as the new wine is found in the, would you read that word? As found in the cluster. One says, do not destroy it, for a blessing is in it. So will I do for my servant's sake that I may not destroy them all. The blessing is in the wine in the cluster, not the wine at the bottle store. Grape juice, yes. Alcohol, no. That's the biblical principle. Now listen, it's one thing to know about this, but if you've never struggled with putting down alcohol, now I'm not going to glorify my past, I don't think that's helpful, but 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 there may be some people here who understand what it's like to decide I don't want to drink this anymore, and the alcohol is calling your name and 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 coursing through your nervous system and pressing all of those buttons, and you might say, 
How can I live a life without this? Well, remember what the Bible writer wrote. My God shall supply how much? All your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. If what you need is victory over alcohol, God can give that to you. If what you need is victory over addiction, God can give that to you. Now, be careful. Sometimes God gives you his power and a 12-step program. Sometimes you get the grace of God and a support group. Sometimes you get God's blessing and you need people around you to keep you heading in the right track. There's nothing wrong with that. You ought not think that you ought to do it all on your own, but undoubtedly God can, boom, simply take it away from you. He does it frequently. He's done it in lots of lives, and he may choose to do it in yours. Now, something else that causes frontal lobe damage is nicotine. One in every five deaths in most Modern first world nations are co- is caused by cigarette smoking. One prestigious ca- uh, cancer research institute said that every cigarette a person smokes lessens their life by 11 and a half minutes. I was getting on a plane once and I saw a sign that said every minute that you smoke is a minute less that you live. Whew. So you're putting something in on the front end and it's taking time off your life on the back end. Smokers die on average 14 years earlier than non-smokers. Oh, no, you're not going to find a commandment that says thou shalt not smoke. But you will find one that says thou shalt not kill. The dozens of carcinogens in tobacco smoke do immense damage to the brain, the organ through which God communicates with you. What do you do about that? Smoking is a brutal addiction. Nicotine is hard to shake off. Someone said it was easy to quit. I used to quit smoking 20 times a day. Sure. But the reality is it's tough sometimes. Now, I do have a friend. Several friends have told me this. They prayed to God and they said, I can't beat this. There's no way I can do this. So you have to take it away. And he did was gone like that to the extent that for about a year she was unable to smell tobacco smoke even if she was in a crowded room filled with people smoking god can do that but he doesn't always do that and he doesn't have to he'll get you through the best way for you philippians 4 and verse 13 i can do all things through christ who strengthens me all things The Bible does not say, I can do all things except put nicotine down. I can do all things except except put drinking out of my life. All things. God can do that for you. Now, you may think I'm meddling just a little bit, but I don't think I am. Because if you want to get rid of nicotine, there's another ean that you ought to put out of your life. If you want to get rid of alcohol, get rid of this as well. This is, some might say, a gateway drug Whether that's true or not, it doesn't change the fact that caffeine is a drug. It disrupts the chemistry of your brain by affecting the level of the neurotransmitters that keep your brain in balance. Nicotine is not neutral. It's not harmless. And in spite of the studies that you read funded by coffee companies, it is not harmless. 
nicotine, sorry, caffeine use leads to many different mental disorders and mental illnesses, including depression. Now, listen to what the experts say. Johns Hopkins School of Medicine quoted in the New York Times, caffeine is the world's most widely used mind-altering drug. A man from Duke University, Dr. James Lane, said, what we have found is that caffeine interacts with stress and intensifies it. Now, I want you to know something very clear. If you're a coffee drinker, I didn't come here to judge you. You didn't come here to be judged. This is between you and God. God didn't judge you. Not now. That'll happen later. But what God is wanting to do is give you every advantage. Because what goes on in our minds is really important. And God calls us to honor him with our bodies. It's hard to do that if you're busy destroying the high point of God's creation. Now, I don't even want to hear you say, it doesn't seem bad to me. I don't care what seems to you, and neither should you. We don't say, it doesn't seem bad to me. That's a loser's question or a loser's statement. What we say is, what honors God? What glorifies God? What is God's preference and priority for my life? And when we know that, then we say what Jesus said. You think Jesus wanted to get nailed to the cross? He prayed God would spare him being crucified. But he prayed and he said, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Should Christians be addicted to drugs? No, but for about eight or nine out of ten Australians, Caffeine is the drug of choice, and it causes problems. I'll give you an example of what Jesus did. Jesus was on a cross, and somebody stuck something in in a mixture of vinegar and some other stuff and put it up to Jesus to drink. Why'd they do that? I'll tell you why. It was something that would numb pain, and Jesus was in immense pain. They'd give it to crucifixion victims, not out of mercy, but if they suffered more pain, they could be crucified for longer. And Jesus realized that anything that would affect his mind would hinder his relationship with his father. Why do you think in many cases temptation does you in? Because in many cases your mind just won't connect to God because you've scrambled it by the things that you've put in. We just get used to living this way and we say, surely it must be okay. Jesus said, no, I'm not going to drink that. In Revelation, the Bible tells us that God's name, his character, will be in the minds of the saved. You want to give yourself every advantage. So let me remind you, if nicotine has got you hooked, if alcohol is something in your life and you want it out, if caffeine is dragging you down and you might not realize it is, but it is, there's somebody who died to give you victory over all of these things. Somebody who died to deliver you from the habits that ultimately destroy not only your body, but also your mind. Jesus is more powerful than any addiction. And he came to this world so that you and I could have life to the full. That's what Jesus said. I've come to give you life more abundantly. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own, for you were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. I have come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. But what has gone wrong? Jesus created a perfect world. He put two perfect people in there. 
They slid down into sin and sickness. Jesus came to the earth. He said, I've come to lift you up. And yet the hospitals are as full as they've ever been. People are sicker than they've ever been. Diseases are everywhere. And I want to mention this. It's not just the weirdo diseases and the strange diseases, but the, 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 the diseases that we're comfortable with. Oh, I've got diabetes. Oh, I'm not knocking you if you have. Don't get me wrong. Oh, my husband has a little, had a little heart, heart problem. Has high blood pressure. Oh, oh, yeah, my husband had a heart attack. Oh, we'll pray for him. Oh, my neighbor has cancer. Oh, that's too bad. We live with it like it's normal. We live with it like it's supposed to be this way. Do you think Jesus came into the world so that we would suffer from all of that stuff? Absolutely he did not. And some of it, much of it, we are suffering with unnecessarily. Health problems are getting worse. But notice what Jesus said. If you diligently hearken to the voice of the Lord your God and do that which is right in his sight, Give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes. If you do that, I will put how many? Please tell me. None of these diseases upon you, which I have brought upon the Egyptians. For I am the Lord who heals you. When the children of Israel left Egypt, they left behind a nation filled with people who were suffering from the diseases we deal with today. Studies show that they dealt with stress, high blood pressure, atherosclerosis, cancer, tooth decay, heart trouble. They dealt with all of that in Egypt. And God said, I will put none of those diseases on you that the Egyptians dealt with. Now listen, God gave us the Bible for a reason. You buy a car, it comes with an owner's manual. And the owner's manual says, put this type of petrol in the car. You don't then turn around and put diesel in the car. You wouldn't do that. You destroy the car. The, the owner's manual tells you how frequently you ought to change the oil, what kind of oil you ought to use. In other words, how to ensure that your car will go as far as possible, as well as possible. The Bible is the owner's manual for the Christian. God says, if you will follow these principles, you'll do a whole lot better. Fear God, give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment is come. It's judgment time. And yet, unfortunately, we are digging our own graves with our teeth. And it's hard to honor God while you're destroying the high point of his creation. And so you go back to the beginning and you discover that God told Adam and Eve just how they ought to take care of themselves. God said, see, I have given you every herb that yields seed, which is on the face of the earth, and every tree whose fruit yields seed. To you it shall be for food. What did God give them? I've given you it. I've given you herbs. And I've given you fruit. This is what God gave them in the beginning. It comes as a surprise to some people that in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve didn't eat animals. There was no death. They did not eat animal flesh. It was not in God's original plan. And how did that work out, do you think? All the days of Methuselah were 969 years. Seems like that was a pretty good plan. But from then till now, there's been an immense change. Was there wisdom in what God did? Was there a reason for what he said? Oh, yes. Yes, there was. Noah and his family, just before the flood, got on board the ark. 
And God said to them, you shall take with you seven each of every clean animal, a male and his female, two each of the animals that are unclean, a male and his female. Sevens and twos, seven of the clean, two of the unclean. Why? Because they would perhaps offer sacrifices. They were not going to offer an unclean animal as a sacrifice. And because when they got off the ark, the planet was destroyed, there wouldn't be olive vineyards, olive uh, orchards, olive yards, olive. There wouldn't be big clusters of olive trees growing. There wouldn't be vineyards. There wouldn't be any of that. They would have to eat what was on the ark, what they took with them, and that might have included animals. They weren't going to eat unclean animals. God shows us there's a distinction here. And I want you to notice that the distinction between clean and unclean predates the advent of the Jewish nation. Were you to look in the book of Leviticus, you would find that it says, among the animals, whatever divides the hoof, having cloven hooves and chewing the cud, that you may eat. Nevertheless, these shall you not eat among those who chew the cud or those that have cloven hooves. The camel, because it chews the cud but does not have cloven hooves, it is unclean to you. So if you were planning on having camel burgers or a good camel stew sometime soon, you now realize that God says the camel is unclean. That doesn't bother you. But God goes on and says a little bit more. If the camel is unclean, that would mean the rabbit is unclean. And if that's the case, we read that the swine, the pig, though it divides the hoof having cloven hooves, yet it does not chew the cud, so therefore it is unclean to you. And what's really interesting about this is that pork has been shown to harbor the trichina larvae. So you eat pork and this larvae now gets into you and starts working away and causing illnesses and simulating all kinds of maladies. I saw a shocking report of a woman who was thought to have a brain tumor. So they opened up her head and started operating. And when they got to what they thought was a tumor, it was actually a worm that had burrowed into her brain. And she had ingested that originally eating infected pork. Some people say, well, you just cook it long enough and those worms die. I don't want to eat worms dead or alive. Not sure about you. And God wants us to avoid all of that. He simply says, it's unclean. Avoid the diseases of the Egyptians. Now, wait, wasn't this just for the Jews? No, it wasn't just for the Jews. For behold, remember, there were no Jews when Noah got on the ark. None. And God put the distinction between clean and unclean animals then. But here, for behold, the day will come. That's future. The Lord will come, sorry, with fire and with chariots like a whirlwind to render his anger with fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. We're talking about the present, still the present. For by fire and by his sword, the Lord will judge all flesh and the slain of the Lord shall be many. We're talking about in the future, those who sanctify themselves and purify themselves to go to the gardens after an idol in the midst, <coughs> eating 
swine's flesh and the abomination and the mouse shall be consumed together, says the Lord. At the time of the second coming, this will still be, the word used is an abomination. God says, just don't do it. Now, when you think about sea creatures, the Bible says, these you may eat of all that are in the water. Whatever in the water has fins and scales, whether in the seas or in the rivers, that you may eat. So this disqualifies a few things. But all in the seas or in the rivers that don't have fins and scales, all that move in the water or any living thing which is in the water, they are an abomination to you. So what does that include? You know, Australians love their prawns. Everywhere you go, there's prawns and shrimp, shrimp, call them somewhere else. Yes, prawns are the big fellows. Crayfish, lobster. I used to love crayfish. I was too poor to buy it. But I remember being in a pub once in Stewart Island, that island off the bottom coast of Australia. And there, were, there was a raffle ticket. They were selling raffle tickets. Just to make it worse, I was in a pub eating crayfish on a Friday night. Can't get much worse than that, can it? They were selling raffle tickets, so we bought a raffle ticket. One of my friends won the crayfish. They brought the crayfish over, put it at our table. You, you snap the legs off and suck out all that stuff. And there's sludge flying everywhere. The tail was about as large as my hand. And I remember that well. But the challenge with these... And with things like, well, well, with those, is they're bottom feeders. Crayfish don't swim around like dolphins. They're on the bottom of the floor, crawling along like cockroaches. They're just aquatic cockroaches is all they are. And they eat what's on the bottom. They dead stuff. Or what the fish above them leave behind. Pretty nasty. A friend of mine who trained to be a Navy diver was told when looking for a body, just look for the line of crabs or crayfish because they find the dead stuff and they eat it. So that person who's eating the, the crayfish or the crab or the shrimp, you're just eating dead stuff that's being recycled. Oysters and other shellfish are filter feeders. You know how they feed? They suck water in, they keep the impurities, and they spit the rest of the water out to the extent that in one, uh, in, in fact, in Chesapeake Bay in Maryland in the United States near Washington, D.C., in an attempt to clean up the water in the bay, they put in oyster beds knowing that all those oysters would act like filters. They'd suck in the dirty water, keep the impurities, and spit the dirty water back out. Each oyster can filter 50 gallons of water a day. And where does all the junk go that it filters out? It ends up on your plate if you are an oyster lover. Well, now... um, we won't be serving any of this at lunch, I don't think, so I'm hopeful you're not losing your appetite. These you shall regard as an abomination among the birds. They shall not be eaten. They're an abomination. The eagle, the vulture, the buzzard, and so on. These are unclean. Um, 
you know, a Thanksgiving is a wonderful, it's a wonderful tradition at Thanksgiving in the United States. People typically eat turkey. Now, you know that people, people agree this is unclean. No one's going to eat a buzzard. You, can you imagine having one of these at Christmas, Christmas dinner? We won't do chicken this year. We'll have a buzzard. Can you imagine that? Disgusting. Now, in case you're wondering, chicken, for some strange reason, is clean. It's profoundly unhealthy. And chickens will eat just about anything. They're dirty little things. But the meat is clean. So you work that one out between you and your doctor and God. Now, the question is this. Didn't it all change at the cross? No. Jesus didn't die to cleanse pigs. He died to cleanse sinners. If you've got a diseased pig or a crayfish or a vulture before the death of Jesus, the death of Jesus did not in any way change the nature of that animal. It was unclean before and it's unclean later. Well, isn't this only for Jews? No, of course it's not. We saw this distinction existed in Noah's day before Jews. And we see this distinction exists at the second coming long after Jews. And by the way, is there anything between any difference between a Jewish stomach and a Gentile stomach? No difference at all. Is the gastrointestinal tract different if you happen to be a Jew rather than if you happen to be a Gentile? No, no difference. You see, this is good health. But let me take it a step further. This is honoring God. God says, this is my will for you. And the truth of the matter is, we don't even need to understand it to be able to implement it in our lives. You don't know how your cell phone works. Doesn't prevent you from accepting it and using it. And even if you say, I I don't know why a hog would be any different to a goat or a cow or a lamb, maybe we can just trust God because God evidently understands the difference. What God wants us to do is get the victory over those things that will damage us physically and more importantly, spiritually. But I have a question for you. The question is, didn't all this change when Peter had his dream? A lot of people genuinely believe this because they read Acts chapter 10, and I'm going to read it to you. I'm not going to put it on the screen. I'll read it out of my Bible. And if you have your Bible, you might like to turn to Acts chapter 10. Now, in Acts chapter 10, the Lord sends a message to a man named Cornelius. He's a Gentile. He says, go or send some Peter to get, send some people to get Peter and bring Peter to your house. He's got some things to share. And so they arrive at uh, where Peter was staying. I'm picking it up in verse nine. And on the morrow, as they went on their journey and drew nigh unto the city, Peter went up upon the housetop to pray about the sixth hour lunchtime. And he became very hungry and would have eaten. But while they made ready, he fell into a trance and saw heaven opened and a certain vessel descending unto him as it had been a great sheet knit at the four corners and let down to the earth, wherein were all manner of four-footed beasts of the earth and wild beasts and creeping things and fowls of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, Not so, Lord, 
For I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice spoke to him again the second time, What God has cleansed, that call not thou common. This was done three times, and the vessel was received up into heaven. The Bible says, While Peter doubted in himself what this vision should mean, Behold, the men which were sent from Cornelius had made inquiry for Simon's house, and they stood before the gate, and they called and asked, whether Simon Peter was lodged there. Now, this is really fascinating. Some people read this, and I get it. They read it. Peter sees a bunch of unclean stuff. God says, rise, Peter, kill and eat. Peter says, oh, no, no, no. And God says, what I've cleansed, don't call it common. It would be interesting if God did that. Because for the previous 4,000 years, he'd made it very clear that this was all unclean. And the prophet said that when Jesus comes back, the unclean stuff will be unclean. So why would there be this parenthetical exception with Peter's dream? Well, there wouldn't be an exception. We need to understand it. How do I understand that, John? He said, eat it and don't call it common. Yes, he did. But what did he mean by that? If you read in verse 28, you read that Peter interprets this for us. He said to them, these were Gentiles who came to his house. You know how that it is an unlawful thing for a man that is a Jew to keep company or come unto one of another nation. But God hath showed me that I should not call any Man, common or unclean. Verse 34, I perceive that God is no respecter of persons. Later in Acts, Peter recounts this whole experience to demonstrate that it's okay for him to go to the Gentiles. God was saying, I don't want you guys thinking you shouldn't go to the Gentiles. I'll tell you what God was saying. God was calling out racism. That's what he was doing. Peter was a bigot. He was a racist. The Jews despised Samaritans. They despised Gentiles. They were so exclusive, they were happy in each other's company, but they hated foreigners. Do you think there could be a modern-day application? Hmm? I wonder. Uh, I don't know if you've noticed, but I think you have. And we're in Melbourne. It's like the immigration capital of the universe. We're in Melbourne at a Polish church. Do you think God might have had a reason for calling out racism? I think he might have. Not only was it a problem then, it's a problem now. God is making very clear to us that Peter was not in the right condition being a bigot. Peter, you despise people based on the color of their skin or their ethnic uh, background or their uh, family tree. That is not on. Peter, you need to change. By the way, if you're one of those people, I hate them because they're black. I hate them because they're white. I hate them because they're Asian. I don't like them because they're from the Middle East.
I don't want to mince my words, but I also don't want to be offensive. But what I've said in the past is that people who harbor those attitudes shouldn't even worry about what heaven will be like because they won't be there. It's still a sin. And if your heart is so corrupt that you can't even find it within yourself not to hate someone who's different than you, then you're going to hate heaven because heaven's going to be made up of people from every background, all races, all nations. They're going to be there from Bolivia and Bahrain and Bangladesh. They'll be there from Beirut. They'll be there from every place you can imagine. This vision wasn't given to Peter to say, Peter, you can go now to that restaurant and eat ham. That's not what God was saying. God was saying, Peter, don't be a racist. Notice, God had showed me I should not call any man common or unclean. That's what the Bible says. In Psalm, verse, in Psalm 84, verse 11, God says, no good thing will I withhold from them that walk uprightly. So when you say, oh my goodness, God has taken away my alcohol. God has taken away my ham. God has taken away my whatever it might be. You know what God is doing? God is blessing your life. He's not taking away. He's asking you to surrender and take on the good stuff that heaven offers. That's a wonderful blessing. God says you can lower your risk of all kinds of disease and you can increase your receptivity to the voice of the Almighty. We've been privileged to live here on the edge of the return of Jesus. Privileged. One day this earth is going to pass away. God wants us to be with him forever. While we're preparing, God says, hey, there are some steps you can take to drastically lower your risk of heart disease, high blood pressure, drastically lower it. But it's not just that God wants to see healthy people lost. God says, would you honor me and make more room for me in your heart and experience more of my blessing? The apostle wrote, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Remember what Jesus said, love God with our whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. And God will do in us what we could never do ourselves. We are in a battle for the mind, a battle for the mind, the mark of the beast. That's a battle for the mind. It's our privilege to be able to give our minds to God, our bodies to God, our whole selves to God.